The scripture reading for this morning is Psalm 39. Please stand for the reading of God's word. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You know, when you are suffering, when you're facing trials and hardships in your life, sometimes you struggle even to ask God why. You find yourself, as I said at the beginning of the service, with your head spinning. You're completely disoriented. What's up is down, what's down is up, and life just feels sideways. Psalms like this psalm, Psalm 39, give us words to take to God. They do. All all the psalms do. And this psalm is no different. Psalm 39 gives the suffering soul words to take to God. David wants us to read his psalm in the midst of our suffering and be reminded that life is short. We are, as James says in James 4, verse 14, echoing the sentiment of this psalm, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And when life doesn't go like you expected and you find yourself suffering, it seems counterintuitive to ask God to help you remember just how frail and fleeting you really are. But David knows, and and God, the author of Scripture, knows that knowledge of our transience before an everlasting God is actually a good thing for those whose hope is in him. The psalm enables us to face the problems of life in the peace that God provides if we will hold fast to the one in whom David calls us to hope. And because David writes as the Lord leads, as we read all that God has done for David, we're invited to trust in the same God in whom David entrusted himself. So four things I want us to briefly consider this morning from this psalm. First, the problem David faced. 
the problem David faced. Second, the perspective David gained. The perspective David gained. Third, the hope David had. The hope David had. And then finally, the plea David made. So problem, perspective, hope, and plea. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you this morning and look at this psalm. We're thankful that you have preserved it for us down to this very day. We're thankful that the way in which you led King David to pray in the midst of his problem is a way that you ensured that we, with the help of your Holy Spirit, throughout all your people since that day, would be able to pray. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would receive from this psalm all that you have for us. We ask that you would do so for your glory and for our good. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the, the problem David faced could easily be the problem David faced, question mark, because we really don't know. The, the psalm doesn't specify what exactly was going on in David's life that, that prompted him to write this psalm. He, he could have been suffering for any number of reasons just based on what we know of his life and based on a few of the clues um, from within this text that aren't in themselves definitive enough to, uh, to really allow us to land on a particular thing going on in David's life. So it, it could be that he was facing hostility of some kind. The, in verse 1, the, the phrase that's translated, uh, so long as the wicked are in my presence, is actually even kind of a little bit more forceful. So long as the wicked are in my face. As long as they're right in front of me. So there, there could be this sense. And of course, we can think of any number of times in which David faced opposition, including from his own son, Absalom. So it could be that he penned this psalm in the midst of some uh, uh, hostility that he was facing. It could be that David was sick. There's a lot of... Um, parallels in language between Psalm 38 and Psalm 39. That's part of the reason why Psalm 38 and 39 are, are listed together. Psalm 38, for instance, you see sin, I'm uh, no, sorry, you see sickness leading to the exposure of sin. It may be that in Psalm 39, we're seeing sickness leading to the exposure of the frailty of life. So it could have been it could have been because of an illness that David was facing that he penned Psalm 39. It, it could have been sin. I, I, I love that we just sang uh, that chorus from Psalm 51, created me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. It could be because David had some sense in this psalm, in verse 11, that sin was involved. Verse 11, uh, he says, when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin... Um, he also will pray, deliver me from my transgressions. Now, that, that could mean that there was specific sin in view. Deliverance from transgressions could mean deliver me from the, the uh, consequences of my sin that I still experience to this day. That in some sense, David felt that sin or the consequences thereof were in view as he wrote this. Some have said, you know what, the fact that he references in Psalm 39 Verse 6, man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. It could be that he's experiencing envy. Uh, the, the wicked that are in his face are prospering. Right? In a way that when Asaph wrote Psalm 73, there was this sense in which when I considered the wicked and how they prosper, the righteous, how they suffer, when did I get in the right frame of mind when I went into the house of God to worship him? So there could have been that going on. Again, so much of this is, I hate to word, use the word speculation because it's thoughtful 
intentional, seeking to discern based on clues that are in the text and things going on in David's life, what was going on when he wrote this psalm. We don't exactly know, and I want to say that that's a good thing. It actually is a good thing. It's a helpful thing. Because what it means is that just as David could have penned this psalm facing any manner of trials in his life, so too we can pray this psalm facing any manner of trials in our life. We can all think of ways in which this fits for us as well. So what is David doing? I'll come back to us in a minute. What is David doing here? He's facing all these trials. We don't know exactly why. We know he's at the end of his rope. We know he's hit rock bottom. Verse 10, he says in verse 10, Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. I'm I'm spent. I have nothing left. He's pleading with God to make it stop. Verse 13, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. He's saying, look away from me in in your punishment, in your discipline of me. Look away. Make it stop. I can't take any more. So David's at the end of his rope. He's crying out to God because of some hardship going on in his life. He doesn't know why. But before he cries out to God, what approach does he take to dealing with his suffering? He tries to hold it all in. He tries to push it all down. He tries not to open up his mouth and talk about it. I see that in verses 2 and 3, right? Take a look. I was mute Well, I'll start with verse 1. I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. Okay, so this is what he was trying to do. He was trying not to speak. Now, his intention there was to not speak in a way that would be sinful. So whether that was sin in his speech toward other people, speaking ill of them, even if they are, you know, opposing him, or whether it was sin in his speech in a way in which he would slander God or dishonor God, whatever the case may be, he was concerned that he would not sin in his speech, and so he just tried to keep his mouth shut. I love how in verse 2, I was mute and silent. He was kind of, he's, he's doubling up there words that pretty much mean the same thing in order to say, I was really, really, really trying to do this. And how many of us do the same thing? And, and how many of us fall so short of trying to keep from, you know, complaining out of a desire to, to you know, glorify God or at least to detract from his, um, our testimony to his glory by the way in which we speak? For how many of us is it just, you know, I just don't want to have people think bad of me. Like, I'm not going to complain because I want people to think I've got it all together. Right? Our, our motives aren't even as pure as David's, and yet David couldn't hold it in. He couldn't. How was that going for him? It wasn't going well. Verse 2, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. My distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused the fire burn. All of us know, don't we, what it's like for the fire to burn? You've just been holding it in for so long. You're, you're turning things over. Now, I'm not attributing sin to David here. We don't know. But we know how we can go when we try to hold it all in. We can get so, oh, you know, I think about 
You think about what Jesus said concerning the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Jesus said, even if you call your brother a fool, you're committing murder in your heart. We hold this stuff in and we start to sin so often, don't we? So the problems that we face in our, in our lives, disappointments mount up, dreams don't pan out, um, uh, hope for end of trials begins to wane. We get a sudden terminal diagnosis. Or the reality of death sets in. You know, you get older, you feel your strength start to wane, you feel your mind begin to slip. You're shocked by the person that you see in the mirror. Right? Can anyone... Does, do any of you feel like you're, like in your mind, not on like feel like, like on a good day, like everything's just kind of feeling loose and you're like, I feel good. I feel like I'm 30. And then you look in the mirror and you're like, who is that? Right? When that reality starts to set in, we're facing a trial. It's, it's a way of, 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 of suffering, of facing hardship. And and when that happens, we can, either, we can either try to hold it all in, but, but we know the futility of that effort, don't we? We know how that can lead to a spiraling of despair. Or we can turn to the Lord. And that's what David does. David turns to God and he gains perspective. Take a look at the second point, the perspective that David gained. David gained two key important perspectives, if you will. First, that life is short. And second, that God is in control. That God's sovereign. Life is short. God is sovereign. Verses four through six, take a look. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Does this sound like a book of the Bible that we're familiar with? Ecclesiastes. It sounds very much like Ecclesiastes. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying David had read Ecclesiastes. I'm, I'm just saying that, that that same reality of the, of the futility of life is something that the Bible is well aware of. If you feel, if you're here this morning, you feel the sense of, man, life is nothing. Life is futile. And, and you think, does Christianity have anything for me? Let's start first and foremost with the fact that the Bible, those who wrote the Bible, the very real human people inspired by God knew what it felt like for life to feel futile. You do not come to the Word of God and find something detached, like, a, you know, a, a guidebook for life, principles to live by, written by people who were so high and holy and above all the rest of us. You get people here who lived, you know, feet firmly planted on a fallen earth, themselves falling apart and wondering, is it all worth it? I mean, David felt that way. And David turned to the Lord and David said, please drive that point home even more. <laughs> it, you would think that David, feeling all that he was feeling towards that opposition, trying to hold everything down, his heart burning within him, needing to let it out, would say, God, vindicate me, or vindicate your name, or bring an end to these people. And instead he says, God, would you show me how brief my life is? He gains an understanding that will help him endure the suffering that he was facing. 
That's verses 4 through 6. And then in verses 9 and 10, you realize that David also recognizes that God is the one who's in control of all this. God is the one who is behind whatever the trial was that he was facing. And again, we don't know. Verse 9 and 10, I am mute, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who had done it. Right. So in verse 2, verses 1 one and two, I do not open my mouth in view of these other people. Verse nine and 10, I do not open my mouth because I know that to do so would actually be to be speaking against you. That sounds like Job at the end of Job. I put my hand over my mouth. I wasn't there when you formed the depths of the sea. Life is brief. Life is brief. God is in control. You know, throughout history, that has been so much of what Christians have been called to realize. Like so much of the heart of what it means to grow as a disciple so that we live well for Jesus is to be prepared to die well for Jesus. Or better said, to die well in Jesus. The sermon could have been titled A Psalm for Dying Well. It really could have been because it is through problems we face that we gain the perspective that we need in order to die well. Well, anyone know Andre Crouch's song, uh, Soon and Very Soon, right? Familiar with it? Soon and Very Soon, we're going to see, I'm not going to sing it, don't worry. Soon and Very Soon, we're going to see the king. Soon and Very Soon, no more crying there, no more dying there, we're going to see the king. Anybody sing that song when they're sitting on the beach, right? Anybody sing that song when you're holding a grandchild, you know, anybody sing that song? Listen to great music at the Jazz Fest? No. It's, it's when you're facing trials. It's when you're facing hardship, when you're suffering. That songs like that, that song or songs like that, concerning the hope and reality of heaven, of, de- of deliverance from the suffering that we face now to the joy that will be real when we're finally with Jesus and see him face to face, soon and very soon. Those are the moments in which we sing songs like that. J.I. Packer says this, in every century until our own, Christians saw this life as a preparation for eternity. Medievals, Puritans, and later evangelicals thought and wrote much about the art of dying well, and they urged that all of life should be seen as preparation for leaving it behind. So purpose of life is preparing to die well. What does that have to do with Psalm 39? Well, if If the purpose of life is to prepare to die well, we're waiting for that day when we die to go and be with Jesus. Where do we learn how to wait well? Not sitting on the beach, unless you're waiting for somebody to bring more lemonade, and that doesn't really count, right? It's in the midst of hardship. It's in the midst of suffering that we learn to wait. That we learn to wait. That we learn to endure. That hope builds And so let's turn third to David's hope. Take a look at verse seven with me. David says, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? And then this line, my hope is in you. Now, what in this psalm grounds David's hope? And it's seen over in verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, here it is, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. The thing that grounds David's hope is his confidence in God's covenant faithfulness. 
his confidence in God's covenant faithfulness. That word that's translated sojourner in our Bibles is a, the Hebrew word for a refugee, somebody who's seeking political asylum from some difficulty. The, the word that's translated guest can also be translated sojourner, uh, a Hebrew word that also uh, is, it has to do with somebody who's seeking permission to stay in the land where they are. What's important is that both of those words are used to describe Israel in God's land in Leviticus chapter 25. Why is that important? Because Israel was God's covenant people. David is saying, I'm a, I'm a sojourner, I'm, I'm a refugee in your land. I'm a sojourner together with all of God's people, like my fathers before me. In other words, David doesn't see himself as an isolated individual dealing with a God he's not sure he can trust. Do you ever see yourself that way? Do you ever feel as though I am an isolated individual dealing with a God I'm not sure I can trust? I have this much of history with this God. David sees himself as part of a covenant family bound by God to God himself. When David prays, I'm a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers, he's not crying out and saying, hear my prayer because I'm desperate. Although God hears the prayer of the desperate. But recognize that beneath whatever desperation David was feeling, either here or elsewhere in his life, what David was praying was, hear my prayer because I'm yours. Hear my prayer because I'm yours. That grounds David's hope. And that can ground your hope. It can. If your trust is in Jesus Christ, then all the promises that God has made for those who are in Christ are promises that he has made to you. And they are promises that are signed, sealed, and delivered through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything Jesus said will come to pass because he is risen. And so when the word of God says that nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ, because Christ is risen, nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ. When the word of God says that God will never leave you nor forsake you, in Hebrews 13, Christ is risen. He will never leave you nor forsake you. When Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6, he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. Christ is risen. Those words aren't going to fall to the ground and be meaningless like everything else in this world. His word will endure. The work will be finished. This is not the end for you. Your hope may be grounded in the covenant faithfulness of God. So then fourth, let's turn to the plea that David made. And I, I want us to see, you know, it's, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I journal, I journal right in the midst of crisis. You know, I've been, I've been wrestling through it all, and sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll write my laments, and I'll set that journal aside, and I'll go wrestle some more with the Lord in prayer. And then I'll come back and I'll be able to write a little bit more. And it's like the way so many of the Psalms, almost all the Psalms, except Psalm 88, which we could do a whole talk on that and how that is a Christ-centered Psalm. It's not a prayer of utter desolation and despair. But coming back to the Psalms as a whole, 
We see Psalms like Psalm 39 in which there seems to be this, this lament that quickly leads to resolution. Don't think that that means that when you pick up a Psalm like Psalm 39 and, and just pray it, that automatically your lament should quickly dissolve into resolution. When I look at verse 7, and David prays in verse 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. I know that there can be hours even days in between those two lines. There's a, there's a Godward orientation. Oh God, where else am I going to go but to you? Psalm, David in Psalm 55 is a great example. Oh, I wish I had wings like a dove so I could fly away. That's David in Psalm 55. Whatever trials he was facing in Psalm 55, I wish I had wings like a bird so I could just get out of here. But then he goes on in Psalm 55 and says, but where would I go? I fly to you, O Lord. There can be time that exists between the lament and that resolved hope. And so we see David's lament, and we were invited to lament as well. But then he ends with this simple prayer in verse 8. In verse 8, David says, Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. That's interesting. Deliver me from all my transgressions. When I, when I read that, I, I thought of Fred Calspeak. I think I was with Fred um, the day before he went to be with the Lord. And he kept, I think it was actually that morning, and he kept saying over and over again, Jesus, forgive my sins and let me in. Jesus, forgive my sins and let me in. Now we can, he had, and we can have the assurance that Jesus has forgiven your sins. But there's that anticipation of all the, all the consequences, all the pain, all the memory of the pain as the result of the sin. Lord, take that away and let me in. I think there's part of what David's doing there as well. Deliver me from all my transgressions, from the consequences, from the sin itself, from the memory of them, the hurt I've caused. Bring full and final deliverance. And then, do not make me the scorn of the fool. Help me just to live a faithful life in the time that I have, bearing testimony to your goodness, and not in any way undermining the testimony concerning who you are before a watching world. People will seek to mock the God of the universe. We all have been there in our hearts as those, most of us, who spent time not following Jesus. And so this simple prayer is the prayer that's on the lips of so many of us as we get to the end of our lives. Lord, help me die well. Help me die with anticipation that you're going to soon and very soon bring me into your presence and help me die in a way that brings glory to you and does not in any way defame you in the eyes of the world. And Psalm 39 is given so that that isn't just the prayer of those who are dying, but those who are very much alive, not feeling as though on the edge of death, but in reality, because life is a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes, in fact, are. I'm going to end with a quick story that Jesus told. In uh, Matthew 25, Jesus told a parable of ten virgins. Now, on a wedding day, um, the groom would go to the house of the bride. 
together. So there's kind of this procession. The groom would make his way to the home of, uh, of the bride, and the whole wedding party would then joyfully process back to the groom's house. And once they arrived at the groom's house, the, the groom would host a wedding feast. It's such a great, when you realize that, you understand more about what it means for Jesus to return for his people and then for us to enjoy the wedding feast of the Lamb in glory, right? But in the, in the parable that Jesus is telling, the groom is delayed for some reason, not told why. And the members of the party, the wedding party, don't know why either. They don't know when he's going to arrive, right? Like they had cell phones and were calling ahead, run a little bit late. In the middle of the night, the groom arrives. Five of the bridesmaids had had plenty of oil for their lamps, and five were completely unprepared. They had run out of oil for their lamps. They couldn't find any more. They couldn't go buy any more. And so they didn't have a way to take the procession back to the groom's house for the wedding feast. Jesus, through that parable, is saying that he's the groom who will come for his church. We don't know when or how long before he'll come, but the question is, will we be ready to meet him when he does? And Psalm 39, and not just Psalm 39, but the Bible as a whole, is given to us for that waiting period so that we can have our faith fueled as we hope in the Lord who will come. David's prayer can be our prayer. David's hope is our hope because it's not focused on David, but on the one in whom he hopes. The perspective that Psalm 39 offers is the perspective that every one of us needs. Life is short. God is sovereign. Let us hold on to that through all the problems that we face. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to hold fast in the sure and certain knowledge that you are holding us fast. Where we never have to wonder if you are there or if you care. Because in Jesus, all who have called to be your own are your beloved. We pray that you help us to rest in the certainty that though in fact life is brief, we will soon be with you and know joy beyond our imagining soon and very soon. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.